I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the second of a two-part series of conversations about how food communicates and how we communicate about food. Last week, we were joined by Dr. Rebecca D'Souza. She's a professor of communication at the University of Minnesota at Duluth. We were talking with her about her work on hunger and the limits of organizing access to food through charitable organizations. So we left that conversation. Rebecca offered us hope for change in the form of kind of looking for advocacy-based organizing that was guided by a mission of food justice rather than simply food access. We pick up that conversation today with two guests who have worked with organizations motivated by such goals. Dr. Kristen Akamoto is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Clemson University. Dr. Sonia Ivansi is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida. And both of them have important things to say about the possibilities of social change in food systems and the politics of that change. Sonia and Kristen, I've been looking forward to our conversation and I hope listeners will find it meaningful too. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Lynn. Mm-hmm. So both of you are communication scholars, you're activists who are committed to addressing issues of hunger, organizing access to food in just ways. You both participated recently in a forum that was published by the Journal of Applied Communication Research. You were among nine authors contributing to this conversation. It was interesting because in reading this article, even though I had known both of you and I'm familiar with your work, I learned more about you in and through this conversation. Although you've both done extensive research on these issues, the roots of your interests and your passions differ. So I'd like to start there. And and Kristen, let's start with you. In the forum, you wrote, quote, I came to food studies quite simply via Appalachia. By this, I mean that the Appalachia region, specifically in North Carolina and Ohio, called upon me on multiple occasions to be present in the lived realities occupied by those who inhabit this space. Kristen, can you talk to us about your connection to place and how that connection to place kind of informs your interest and activism around food? Sure, Lynn. Um, Thanks for this question. And I think that a celebration of place is really central to, to my work. And the more that I've worked within the Appalachia region, um, the more central, centrally that's really 
come into focus. Um, food and place, they're really inextricably linked. Um, so if you look at the southern U.S., for example, where I'm currently located in Clemson, South Carolina, um, there's all sorts of markers of culture that come along with food. So just something as simple as cornbread, for example, and if you make it with or without sugar is a significant cultural marker. Um, barbecue, if you make it with tomato or with vinegar, it's telling of where you're from, right? It tells a story about your identity. Um, so food and place and culture and identity, they're all interrelated. And I think that that's something that's important to really take into consideration for anyone that studies food. Um, as for me personally, I've always felt called to the Appalachian region, um, both in my undergraduate and graduate studies, um, and now in my professional life, um, which has lived in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I sort of have not been able to to get away from it in the in the best of ways. It somehow calls me to um, to be a witness to the people that are within this rural region that are um, that are living without enough to eat. Um, so Ramadurai, Sharf, and Sharkey, they stated in a 2012 health communication article um, that rural America is often overlooked as a site of engagement um, for communication scholars specifically who are interested in food insecurity. Um, and so I take that call seriously as someone who is in this region and has an intimate understanding um, of the region. I take that seriously. Um, so I think that in order to adequately study food insecurity in any region, right, the place must be considered. The unique identity of that place has to be considered. So mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. what I mean by my, my connection to place specifically within Appalachia. Mm -hmm. I love, I love the metaphor of, of the teacher scholar as a witness Mm -hmm. that you feel called to witness people in the places in, in which they live and the stories that they tell and how yeah. those stories are informed by that. That's, that's beautiful. Sonia, you also connect your academic interests to storytelling, but in a different way. So let me, let me read for the listeners who, who might not have um, engaged this piece yet, something that you share. You write, to some degree, my academic pursuits can be traced back to my own access to food production consumption and bearing witness to others' lack thereof. I was not food insecure myself, but my proximity to food insecurity was revealed through family storytelling. Again, that proximity, right? Proximity hints of place, and it's revealed through family storytelling. Um, can you unpack what this means to you, Sonia? Yeah, and I think kind of two stories come to my mind when I, I think about the root of where I'm coming from when I said that. And um, the first is connected to my mom and the family stories that, that she would tell us, um, often around the dinner table. And she would talk about her childhood. And I was always really aware, I think from a young age, of how different my mom's childhood experiences were from my childhood experiences. Um, so she would talk about, um, you know, like my grandmother. So her mom, 
who was a single mother, a first-generation Hungarian immigrant during the 1960s, and my grandmother had no more than a sixth-grade education. So um, my grandmother was a single mom. Her husband died when my mom was about eight. And so my grandmother worked full-time to feed and clothe five children. So food was scarce, um, and my mom would tell stories about this. You know, she'd talk about having meat, maybe or certain kinds or cuts of meat only on special occasions, or sort of fighting with her siblings at the dinner table uh, for the best pieces. Um, I remember she used to say that she was glad her school required them to wear uniforms because it made being poor less obvious. And so because of all of these things, my mom learned to sew and cook and clean at a very young age because she had to because her mom worked. And so as a result, I've always really known her to um, revile pretty much all domestic tasks. <laughs> she doesn't like <laughs> sewing. She doesn't <laughs> like cooking. Uh, she avoids all of those things like at, at all costs, but she always took food really seriously. And so she'd tell these stories about cooking as a young kid for her family um, and her brother Tom would come through the door and kind of pick through her hair and attempt to guess what was for dinner that night by identifying like the food, the food crumbs in her hair or maybe the drips of what had splashed up onto her shirt. Mm. So, mm. you know, he'd say like, looks like we're having tomato sauce tonight or whatever it is. And so she really loved us with food, but she also made us very aware through these stories about how privileged we were to have access to food and that not everyone has that. Mm -hmm. um, the second story I want to tell was connected to my elementary school education and to one of my most very embarrassing moments as a kid. Um, and it was one of those moments where you felt like you just wanted to melt into the floor and disappear yourself. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, in elementary school, a lot of my friends and peers ate breakfast at school. And so I sort of came to realize this and I wanted to join them. I felt like I was, you know, really missing out. And so I wanted to take part in this ritual with them. And I was convinced that breakfast was just free because mm -hmm. I kind of saw them going through the motions. So it was maybe first grade. And um, so I told my mom I wanted to do this and she tried to give me money for breakfast and I was adamant, I refused. And uh, she said, well, let me just put it in your backpack and you'll have it, you'll have access to it if you need it, just in case. Uh, but I was fairly uh, stubborn and indignant, so I refused <laughs> to take it. I was like, no mom, I don't need it, you don't understand, you know? And so I went and had breakfast with my friends and I got to sort of the, the line, expecting they might just punch a card or type in some numbers and I would move on. Uh, but the woman who worked there asked for money. And I just sort of had this very sudden realization that for some of my classmates, breakfast was free uh, mm -hmm. because it needed to be. And that's how they were able to eat breakfast. And I think I just, it hit me really suddenly and I felt so embarrassed because I thought I should have known and I kind of felt like I was trying to steal or something. And mm -hmm. um, later on, actually in my undergraduate education, I came to learn through a book called Schooling Homeless Children that was specifically about my elementary school around the time when I attended. 
that not only were many of my peers food insecure or on free and reduced lunch, but a lot of them were actually living without homes. Mm-hmm. And so this event, as well as a number of other events that I had witnessed, um, helped me be very aware of my own privilege. And so even at this young age, I think, because food is so fundamental to living, that I knew this privilege was not necessarily something I had earned, that it was an injustice, mm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The story that you just shared I think beautifully illustrates something that characterizes both of your work. Both of you look at the production, the consumption, even the disposal of food as something that is both material and corporeal through the body and communicative, right? So that food insecurity It's felt by a child in first grade when they're hungry. It's materially addressed through access programs at schools. Um, Yet there's a communicative dimension to that experience as well. So what I'd love to hear both of you talk a little bit more about is the value-added nature of the communication discipline and, and what we bring to food studies in ways that deepen our understanding of how to address seemingly intractable social challenges like hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the first things that comes to mind that communication offers in the study of food is viewing food as a performance. Um, there's That's certainly not unique just to the communication discipline, but it's something that the communication discipline takes seriously. So all of the rites and rituals that surround food, uh, the way we eat food, the way we grow food, the way we dispose of food, um, it is a social performance meant for others to to view and to see and to learn from. And we learn through those performances what to value, right? What's considered nutritious or healthy. Um, I read an an article last summer about how bottled water is a performance of what what is healthy, right? Um, And the consequences, the material consequences that that has on on our environment um, because of the the plastic that's left over from from the bottle, right? So I think that communication is really the the fulcrum point around which the material and the symbolic nature of food um, balances, right? It's what unites both of those, both of those ends. Um, together for us to understand the way that yes, food is vital to our survival. We need it to live. We need it to to you know maintain life. But um, it's also it's also symbolic as well, mm-hmm. and as mm-hmm. much as it is material. Mm-hmm. So when you get those ramen noodles at the grocery store, that is sustenance, but it mm-hmm. also speaks to and implies issues related to social class and perhaps judgments associated with the nutritious value of, of mm-hmm. those choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And there's also ways through the example of ramen noodles, how that's been co-opted um, as something that's new and trendy. And right, it can be mm-hmm. there's ramen noodle bars that pop up in major urban areas that um, people will pay a lot of money to go mm-hmm. uh, to go eat. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's been co-opted yeah. as something that is not just for the struggling college student anymore, but it's something that you know the thirty-something. Um, Manhattanite will will go and partake in now, right? So through the telling of these stories, through communication, we can change the meaning of, of food, right? Meanings aren't fixed. And I think that that's what communication offers our discipline. Um, I think what you're getting at really nicely there, Kristen, is the way that the symbolic or the communicative and the material mutually influence each other. Mm-hmm. Um and that that's something that I think communication scholars are really ripe to illustrate that that mm-hmm. happens and the ways that that goes about happening. So mm-hmm. like what stories or ways of speaking circulate around objects like food or food insecurity or poverty or hungry or hunger or charity or class. Um, but then also how do these stories and these objects like mutually influence each other? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how stories shift. They're not, they're not static. They exactly. shift across time. They shift across context. Um, they shift as different people enter in and make sense from their own spaces. Mm-hmm. Like lobster used to be considered poor people's food. Mm-hmm. And it was um, thought of as inhumane to feed that to prisoners. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's this delicacy and we we society judges people if they buy lobster with their food stamps, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sonia, you talk about this in, in some of your articles, one of them that will be available for free to our listeners that was just published in health communication. You talk about linguistic choices like food desert and how there are consequences of that, right? Those, those symbolic choices open up some ways of making sense of experiences, and they close off ways of making sense of that. Um, so you take these uh, these seemingly neutral terms, right? Food desert that's used to describe an experience, and and you push on the limits of that. Yeah. So I think sometimes I think you made a good point with thinking of that phrase as if it's politically neutral, because I think we have these terms and and we just use them. And sometimes we don't think about the ways, uh, the political impact maybe that they have or the impact that they maybe have for the people who live in the place that we're naming, right? So what happens when your neighborhood gets labeled a food desert and what does that do and say for the people who who live in that space and identify with that space? And, And maybe think of it in very different terms. Maybe you're proud to be from that neighborhood. Um, That when we think of desert, we think of empty and blighted and all of these sort of very negative characteristics. Um, So on one hand, there's identity implications uh, that can impact how someone sees themselves and and someone sees the place that they're from. Um, But there's also implications about, you know, what causes something to happen. So a desert is sort of this just sort of naturally occurring force of nature 
right? It just sort of happens. Um, and so when we call something a food desert, we are kind of assuming that that's just this naturally occurring event. And we're not really thinking about the ways that humans and corporations and governments all in conjunction with each other and um, policies and uh, that have class and racial implications have created these food deserts. They're not just sort of forces of nature that exist. Um, and so people have proposed other language to sort of insert that, that agency in there. Like some people um, have proposed the language of like food deserted, right? Mm. Cause it's not, mm. it's that these people have been left out of something, right? Have been ignored. It's not that there's something wrong with that place. So that's maybe just an example of the ways that uh, people are sort of pushing back and questioning that language. While it's been really helpful in a lot of ways, uh, it's not inherently bad. It helps us identify the places where we need to put resources, um, but we should maybe think critically about what the implications of that language is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By extension, there is a difference in the way that we talk about food access and the way that we organize around that narrative of food mm -hmm. access compared to a narrative of food justice and how we organize around food justice. Can you... Can, can one of you or both of you talk through how you see the difference? Yeah, so I, I think, think, go ahead, Kristen. Uh, so just to give perhaps a tangible example of this um, from my work in, in Appalachia, I think that somebody can have access to food, but it's not justly available to them or provided to them. So in the Appalachia region, there's there's lots of farmland. There are farms. But what I found is that through my work with various organizations that addressed food insecurity is that many of the children in the area, they can't identify what we would consider to be pretty basic fruits and vegetables um, when various organizations come in to do educational programming. So they're surrounded by these these fruits and vegetables because they're grown on on the land they live in, but they're shipped they're shipped off somewhere else to make money because their family needs that money to survive. And most most of the time they're living on um, prepackaged shelf stable foods, right? So they might have access to food, right? They're, the access isn't a problem, but is that really justice? No, I would argue that it's not. So I think that's a prime example of hmm. what what some of the differences might be. They're surrounded by this bounty of food, uh, depending on what the land gives them, right? Um, but they they can't partake in any of it, which mm -hmm. is that that story when it was told to me was particularly um, illuminating and stuck really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when we focus on access, it really sort of uh, limits what we think of as possible so solutions or it limits our imagination to what 
possible solutions could be. Because um, when we hear access, we think, well, they just they just need more food or there's just not enough food and that that's what this is about. And so we often turn to solutions like food pantries or um, we assume that we, you know, just need to allocate more food. And oftentimes it's maybe prepared food, so not fruits and vegetables to certain people or certain places. And we're not thinking about like, what are the root causes of the reasons why people don't have food access? A food justice lens helps us think about the ways that food access is really interconnected to all of these other injustices in our society. Mm -hmm. And that when we talk about food access, we're not just talking about, can you access food? We're talking about um, your access to jobs and housing and transportation and and healthcare and all of these other sorts of things. And to add on to that, Sonia, I think that food justice is more intersectional or it takes seriously intersectionality more so yeah. than just food access, right? Because it does talk it, it does consider things like gender and race and class um, to be a part of access to food, not just, oh, here is access to a food pantry, problem solved, have a good day, right? It's, it, it looks more systemically at, at the, the causes of why people don't have enough to eat. So yeah, yeah, it brings those intersectional issues you're referencing really to the forefront of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that there's a temporal dimension in moving from food access to food justice, that Mm. the story of food access is very much about uh, addressing an immediate need, Um, but food justice demands that we go beyond that and we say, why do those needs exist to begin with? Yeah. And... um, we're at a place in, in the U.S. and beyond where where we need both, right? We need both organizations to focus on survival and to get us to a place of social change and addressing some of those broader economic, legislative, um, social forces right, that keep that in place. And in, in many ways, this connects us back to the Defining Moments episode and the conversation with Dr. Rebecca D'Souza, right, where she's looking at right, in-depth fieldwork with charitable organizations that are organized with the best of intent, but too often um, circulate narratives about hunger that really fail to address some of the the broader issues that are leading people to that place of of being hungry. Mm -hmm. What I find um, hopeful about the work that both of you do is that in comparison to to her work, you have done field work similar to to what um, Rebecca did. You relied on ethnographic field work in which you're immersed in Uh, the stories of people's lives as they live them, but with organizations that by design aspire to food justice. And that doesn't mean that 
they always reach it or live it or that there's not um, dilemmas and contradictions in it. But by design, they they seek to move beyond collecting and, and distributing food. So I'd like to dig a little deeper into the organizations that you that you've worked with. Um, and both of these were in the poorest county in the state of Ohio, a county that has twice the the poverty rate of the national average. One in three children um, qualify for free or reduced lunches and breakfasts, uh, Sonia, like the one that you told us about. Hmm. Um, Kristen, let's start with, with you. Um, you describe Rural Action, the organization that you worked with, as a positive deviant case. Can you talk to us about what this means and and how you went about working with this organization? Sure. So the concept of a positive deviant case um, is based on a recent article that came out in a journal called Management Communication Quarterly about how to study organizations that are doing work that is to be held as an exemplar. Um, and it's really predicated around and embrace embraces the concept of Arvind Singhal's theory of positive deviance, um, which basically is a bottom-up approach to research that it calls upon researchers to, to ask themselves, what are people already doing in this area that's working? Uh, and as opposed to researchers coming in and imposing their own set of ideas for what should be done. It asks researchers to say what's already being done that can be exemplified or highlighted in some way. Um, and so using this, I, I did position rural action as a, a positively deviant case uh, because they do serve as an exemplar for, for food justice in the community. Um, and so they, their whole mission and something that I heard conveyed to me many times throughout my, my field research is that they consider themselves to be an asset-based organization, which this concept really does mirror the concept of positive deviance because they focus on what the area has as opposed to what it lacks, right? So mm -hmm. what are the assets that are in place that can really be uh, harnessed for, for good, for change? One of the examples of this is that in the Appalachia area, in, in southeastern Ohio specifically, ginseng can be found um, just growing wild on a lot of the land in the area. And one of the unique things about uh, people who, who live in the area is that many of them tend to own their own land. So they have access to this ginseng. So Rural Action, one of the programs that they, that they run um, is teaching landowners how to harvest ginseng and then turn around and um, sell this for for profit. So this to me is a positively um, deviant approach as in terms of how rural action goes about trying to address this idea of food insecurity rather than um, providing food directly to those that need it, which they also do through a food auction. Um, they provide individuals with resources to be able to be uh, self-sufficient 
um, which I think is more of a long-term uh, approach as opposed to just providing for that immediate need. So that's why I position them as a positively deviant case. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Kristen Akamoto and Dr. Sonia Ivansi. Kristen is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Clemson University. Sonia is an assistant professor at the University of South Florida. We've been talking about their work with organizations inspired by the goals of social justice and food justice, and in connection to a previous episode where we talked with Dr. Rebecca D'Souza about her critically acclaimed book on white privilege, neoliberal stigma, and charitable organizing around food. Sonia and Kristen's recently published articles in Health Communication are publicly available and free. For your convenience, we've placed a link to these articles on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation. So Kristen, in listening to you, the asset-based orientation adopted by Rural Action positions that organization in unique ways in terms of its interface with community members and its desire to identify and amplify the abundance of resources that already exist in a region. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Sonia, you worked with a different organization in the same area, community food programs, but it's an organization that that interfaces with rural action. So it it its path comes into contact with rural action, but they are separate entities. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about the mission and and the scope of community food programs? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, community food programs, or I'll just call them CFP, is in a lot of ways really unlike other organizations that we had we typically think of in terms of food nonprofits. And that's really why I chose them, going along with that sort of notion of positive deviance, and that they were doing something really different and really positive, I thought. Um, so they work in conjunction with rural action, which I can speak a little bit more to here in a moment. Um, But their goal is uh, to build community resilience through supporting a food system in which everyone in Appalachia, Ohio, has access to healthy local food. And so I think what's really unique about them is that they're not only working to address like short-term food insecurity, so they provide people um, with produce who need emergency food, but they're also working to change and invest in food security in the area in a long-term sort of a way. So they're investing in the food system by purchasing this food from local farmers. Um, a lot of the times through like the produce auction that Rural Action runs. Um, and they see CFP sees food as a justice issue. So it's important for them to get people fresh fruits and vegetables, not just food. Uh, which can be rare at food pantries, and they don't always have access to that. Um, mm-hmm. And so they get at access from a number of different angles, right? So they're, they not only give them fresh fruits, fruits and vegetables, but they're working to invest in the local farmers and the local seed savers um, who are already there in the region. So they also, interestingly, 
intentionally take an asset-based perspective in their work. Mm-hmm. So they run community gardens, uh, school gardens, they do cooking demonstrations, they run food workshops, and they seek out people from the local community to actually do some of this work. So to put on a workshop. Um, and that goes along with that asset-based approach is that they're like, we already have a lot of knowledge and resources here in the region. How can we build off of that, right? Mm-hmm. So they started a seed company, which is kind of another example of thinking of food security more long-term is um, how can we invest in people who are saving seeds locally and how can we make sure we have access to food and seeds like long-term in the future? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I, rem- I remember in some of your your writing, you talking about the stories behind the seeds um, and and one, and I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right or not, mm-hmm. Sonia, but is there a mortgage lifter tomato? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, CFP puts out is like a, um, a booklet with seeds and seed stories. And so part of the, I did a lot of different types of data analysis, but one of the things I did was read all of these seed stories And one of the seeds was called a mortgage lifter tomato. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they say that in the early 1930s in Logan, West Virginia, it was created by radiator repairman, MC radiator, Charlie Biles. And they go on to talk about how he had no experience in breeding tomatoes, but he made a successful cross of four of the largest tomatoes he could could find. um, And that people came from over 200 miles to get these seeds Mm -hmm. and that they call it the mortgage lifter because it helped him pay off his mortgage in six years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so connecting these, uh, the actual material object of the seed to the place it came from and the person and to maybe the material outcomes of having created and saved that variety of seed. There's a there's a narrative legacy, a family legacy, and um, an economic um, an economic one as well. Absolutely, it's beautiful. Yeah, I was always very impressed and wowed by the seed stories. Like um, there was a story about how someone finally found a seed that they had named their daughter after, after not having been able to find it for for a really long time. So. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think characterizes both of your work is the artful, or in your words, the aesthetic way that you um, you approach understanding food and how people communicate about food and the role of food in their lives. You both write in ways that, A, make me hungry, <laughs> And that evoke just this multi-sensory experience of food. So Kristen, um, one of the passages that I highlighted, I started, I circled from your essay in health communication that, that our listeners will have access to. You say, I'm surrounded by ripe strawberries, verdant and crimson, sugar snap peas. I fumble the pod between my thumb and forefinger bringing it up to my mouth. 
The crunch as I bite through the fibrous exterior eventually gives way to the honey flavor of the peas inside. We go on, plucking peas out of the box with childlike fervor akin to fingers in the cookie dough. It's just, it's just exquisite writing. Oh, what does it mean to you to understand food aesthetically? First of all, thank you for that. Mm. Um, so to me, understanding food aesthetically, uh, it means that food has to be sensed in order to to understand it. Again, going back to our discussion earlier about the interrelationship between the symbolic and the material, I think that the aesthetic is is a way that, that gets at that interconnection. Um, the practice of aesthetics, sort of at its most basic level, is an act of discerning, uh, an act of discerning what is good or beautiful. Um, if we think about assessing a fine work of art, a painting, right, a sculpture, something like that. That is, in essence, the aesthetic, right? So mm-hmm. if you translate that to food, right, thinking about your most recent trip to the grocery store, however long ago that might have been in light of where we currently are, right? But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if you think about going to the grocery store, right, you probably select fruits and vegetables based on how vibrant they are in color, right? So we're using sight. If you think about um, sort of throwing a cantaloupe in the air and listening to it fall and listening for that thud to make sure that it's that it's ripe inside, right? Or feeling mm-hmm. something in your hand, an apple, to make sure that it's not mealy, that it still has its has its um, its shape and form to it, right? Mm-hmm. That is all an aesthetic way that we that we assess food. Right. Uh, this gets translated to our material choices, right? Such as what foods are considered healthy for us. There are a lot of a lot of books. If you just do a search on Amazon for food and color, right? I'm not purporting to make any statement about the health benefits of such, right? But um, <laughs> if you do, if you if you do a search, right, you'll see lots of books that come up regarding the relationship between food color and health, right? So for a blueberry, right, there are MDs, medical doctors, that say the darker the blueberry, right, the healthier it is for you because it has more antioxidants. So the color of that blueberry is directly translated to how healthy that blueberry is supposed to be for our body, right? Um, And so that, when we choose blueberries, we're making an aesthetic choice as to which ones are the best for us. So essentially, we're using aesthetic sensibilities to assess the risk that food might have to us or the health benefits that food might have on our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. So food is aesthetic, right? And the way that we discern risk and health as it relates to food is an aesthetic choice, not just a material one. Uh Uh To connect this to your work, Sonia, you you go on to argue that artful sensibilities are central to the work of organizations that are focused on social justice, Mm -hmm. food or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And I've drawn a a couple of people here. Um, 
a couple of scholars, but I also draw on the work that I saw with, with CFP in order to make this argument. So, um, for example, I saw aesthetics come through as a strategy that CFP used to do their work, right? So, for example, one of the things that those who worked at CFP did was try to highlight and emphasize the aesthetics of food and the experience of food and of gardening and of food preparation in their food demonstrations or in their community gardening parties or, or whatever it was, um, or in their elementary school demonstrations. So they try to get people to taste something new, right? Then they'd encourage them to talk about the flavor, the texture. Um, and instead of condemning certain food as like bad food or good food or better food, they tried to get you to focus on the experience of oftentimes the produce that you had in front of you. So what does that ground cherry taste like in your mouth, right? What does it feel like to have your hands in the dirt? Like, what is that experience like, you know? And so they tried to bring people in relation to this sort of aesthetic judgment connected to food and to taste uh, in order to change our relationships with the food, mm -hmm. with the land, um, with each other. So the philosopher Dewey spoke about aesthetics as having communal and shared experiences with others. I think sometimes when we think of aesthetics, maybe we think of like high art and something that's isolated and distant and only accessible to some people. But if we take Dewey's framework on it, it's something that's meant to be communal and shared. And that's really how CFP saw food. They said everyone should have access to good food. Everyone should be having this kind of experience, you know, not just certain people who can afford produce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another scholar that I think to uh, think of is Muth, um, who argued that mm -hmm. art has this productive capacity, right? And she said something like, that's where art's great power lies in its capacity to make us see things in a different way, to make us perceive new possibilities. Right. So CFP is really asking us, how can we use food and experiences around food and stories to see Appalachia and seeds and our connection to people in place differently or anew? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the experiences that that my family and I have had over the past eight weeks as we've been in sheltering at home um, and amidst profound uh, societal unrest and righteous anger and suffering associated with both the coronavirus and um, what many people, myself included, consider this, this virus of systemic racism. One bright spot for us, one meaningful experience has been the process of composting. And this is something that we've always thought we should do, we ought to do, we see the value of it, we like to garden, right? Um, but we've just never done it. And I think we were daunted by it. And so we're a couple of months into the process and we're just now starting to see how bringing together these materials in a unique way allows for growth to occur. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find that process really beautiful. It's um, it's not a fine painting or a photograph that that takes your breath away, but nonetheless, the process through which that happens um, and how materials change and evolve mm-hmm. and create something new, I found that to be a beautiful process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes with composting, growth occurs unintentionally <laughs> mm. out of your compost pile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's also so much easier than I, I think I, it felt so daunting to me yeah. to do. And um, it's really not. So for all of you listeners out there who've thought about it and not tried it, um, our experience has been a meaningful one. And it's something that will certainly continue um, post-COVID, right? Mm-hmm. But and I it, think that aligns with, with Dewey too, that the quotidian is aesthetic. It is art. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. everyday, the mundane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you both also describe yourselves as storytellers, as narrative scholars. And, and you know that I believe that storytelling that moves people is, is an artful process. Right? Um, Sonia, in your recent HealthCom article, you describe narratives that circulate around food and around hunger and and food insecurity. You describe narratives of drainage, dependency, desperation. And this is for um, really not just this region, um, the Southern regions where you're at, but, but across the U.S. Can you unpack for us how how these dominant narratives circulate, what they look like, feel like, and and maybe um, their unintended consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So we have these sort of dominant ways of talking about um, food insecurity or people who are food insecure or, or people who access food pantries, that sort of thing. Um, they really position these people as dependent on others or a drain on others. Um, and sometimes in a separate sort of story, but related the way that the poor or food insecure people live these sort of sad, desperate lives, right? That's sort of a, a typical narrative. And this comes through in our political conversations about welfare or food assistance or other entitlement programs connected to poverty. So you might hear a politician talk about um people as if they're a drain, or they might say we need to implement work programs. That's a conversation that's actually happening right now. And the implicit or sometimes overt implication is that people who are poor are lazy and are sort of taking from the hard earning others who are deserving of what they have. Uh, And then it also comes through in our personal everyday stories and our everyday ways of talking about these things that uphold these structural narratives. So when we express judgment just to a friend about what a person with SNAP benefits is purchasing, or we talk about someone on welfare is lazy, uh, we're upholding and preserving these sort of larger societal narratives. Um, And then on the other hand, we have these discourses about charity that really celebrate it and celebrate the people who participate in it. And so we have these walks and runs for hunger and a scholar named Poppendike talks a lot about this. Um, 
as does D'Souza, right? We see people who volunteer broadly. We, society sees people who volunteer at food pantries or donate their food as really generous. And so these narratives really kind of create this rigid, like giver receiver binary that positions the receiving party as dependent on and a drain on others. And the receiving also as um, like lacking agency in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when we tend to narrowly categorize someone as needy and then this other group is giving, we miss a lot of the story. And this was really illustrated through my field work with CFP uh, where I saw all kinds of people working to alleviate food insecurity, but they were not necessarily food secure or financially secure themselves. Um, They talked about how I had a participant say that he just assumes food insecurity and just shows up with food. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he told a story about a neighbor who made sandwiches all summer for the children in the neighborhood who didn't have enough to eat, but that he also knew that neighbor who was doing that herself did not have enough to eat. Mm. And so I think we make these assumptions or these, these grander societal narratives that uphold this giver-receiver binary um, kind of give us this false sense that people with few resources can't be philanthropic or aren't philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really partial and really disempowering. We mm-hmm. miss so much of the story and we miss a lot of the agency and the action that's happening on the inside that's going on. We miss the ways that people are already working to address food insecurity um, when we assume that we just need to wait for the generous to give what they have. Mm-hmm. I think one of the Another good example of that, Sonia, since we did work with organizations that are so mm-hmm. closely related, they both depend on AmeriCorps volunteers primarily to um, for the organization to, to run. And many of those um, individuals, right, they, they make a limited stipend to yes. live on. And so I would hear a lot of stories um, during my work with the organization about how the, these volunteers often relied on food stamps themselves. So it sort of flips on its head the idea of the, the giver and the receiver, right? Absolutely. The same people that were, that were also receiving assistance were providing assistance to others, which was, I, I thought, a pretty poetic juxtaposition of, um, of contrast there, right? Between Absolutely. Who, who provides resources and who receives those resources. And oftentimes it's the people in those communities who know what's going on, who know who's food insecure because that's their neighbor Mm -hmm. or that's their best friend. And so I think it's Mm -hmm. like they're also working from a place of of knowledge and experience that people Mm -hmm. coming in from the outside without that knowledge and experience just really don't have. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that because they were associated with AmeriCorps, uh, as a volunteer, somehow culturally that's been constructed as being uh, more an acceptable form of mm-hmm. food insecurity as opposed to other types that we've socially constructed as not being as desirable, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty telling in and of itself as well. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think for in a lot sometimes for the AmeriCorps workers, it's like their lack of resources is is constructed as temporary for some mm-hmm. of them. Sure. Um, and that that's like a, again a generous sort of choice that they're making versus mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. In which some is, cases perhaps benevolent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there could be an interesting connection here to Kristen's concept of narrative resilience. Because when I'm listening to Sonia, you talk about the narratives of dependency and desperation Mm -hmm. and the false binary that they perpetuate between the giver and the receiver. That dominant narrative fails to grasp the resilience among people, right? Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Kristen... Let's riff about that for a second. How can mm-hmm. we connect this into your ideas about narrative resilience that are in this article, but also chain across other articles that you've written? Mm-hmm. So I write about narrative resilience as sort of a framework for any organization interested in social justice um, as a way that they could rethink their orientation towards justice. Um and sort of a, as a way to highlight what should be what should be emphasized in their thinking, or what could be emphasized in their thinking. So, um, in my theorizing of nar- narrative resilience, I say that it's based around three pillars: um, place, heroes, and pragmatism. Right. So mm. this this means that y- you should celebrate place, right? A sense of place, um, knowing the history of the the land that you're serving. So for, in my case, with rural action specifically, Appalachia has a history of extraction. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of participants that that I worked with, um, that Appalachia has a history of individuals coming in, exploiting natural resources, and then leaving the area for others to benefit. Right. So as a result, there's this there's this emphasis on wanting to be and needing to be self-sufficient to protect from that exploitation. Right. Um, and if you're not attuned to that history of place, that's that gets missed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so heroes is also something that should be celebrated um, as part of a narratively resilient framework. Um, who who in the area has been celebrated and what does that mean for the way that the community to op- the community operates right what does it point to in terms of what's valued in that space and for Appalachia specifically southeastern Ohio uh, it, the area was settled by um, people that were invested in the back to the land movement mm-hmm. which was very much, a pushback against urban um, urban dwelling, right? To get back to people's roots, to be self-sufficient, to create their own gardens, right? That history, again, is present. And those people are celebrated in this space, right? So that should be taken into account, right? And then a narrative resilient, narratively resilient framework also privileges pragmatism, right? And by this, I mean that it's focused on the utility of a theory, versus just the just the theory itself right what of what use is 
is a theory? What are the practical implications of, of what can be done, right? Um, and so I think going back to, um, to, to Sonia's point, right, I think that a sense of pragmatism is sort of folded in to the very organizing practices of both of these organizations that we that we worked with, right? It's a, as Laura Ellingson would say, it's a let's get real orientation, <laughs> right? Let's not overlook uh, the the negative, but how can we incorporate that into our triumphs? Right? Let's mm-hmm. not eschew it. Let's not pretend like it didn't happen. Yes, we were exploited. What are we going to do about it now? It's the what next that matters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And part of that what ne- next, part of that resilience is flipping the script mm-hmm. on who is a hero. The mm-hmm. hero is mm-hmm. no longer the outside savior or the white savior right, or the middle mm-hmm. class savior, right? It is, it's yourself and your neighbor, right? It's, it's within your community, mm-hmm. um, identifying those resources. So that's a, that's, um, a, that challenge, that narrative resilient standpoint challenges the broader scripts, um, that Sonia was speaking to. Mm-hmm. Both of you spent considerable time with your organizations, more than a year volunteering, talking with people, um, interacting with them as they went about their daily lives um, do you have memorable moments from the time that, that you spent with them? There are so many that come to mind, but I think one of them um, gets at this idea of agency and what sort of agency we afford to people on food assistance, like, like a SNAP program. And so one that comes to mind happened when I was volunteering uh, with community food programs, donation station program at the farmer's market, where you can donate um, fresh produce from your yard or purchased produce from the farmer stands or money to CFP and they'll buy from the farmers and then they'll distribute that food out to local people or organizations who distribute it to others, essentially. Um, and so there is, there was one instance in which I was working there and I volunteered there on a weekly basis as part of my field work. Um, and someone donated a few of their snap coins into the money jar. So they have this program where you can use your snap benefits at the farmer's market by, um, putting in your EBT card and taking out coins Mm. and you can, they have, um, funding to double $10 of people's SNAP benefits. So if someone takes $10 out, um, they get $20 in coins. And half of these coins are their SNAP benefits that can be used on any food they want. So produce, but also bread or jam or salami. And then the other half of the coins are green, so they're a different color. Um, And they can only be used on fruits and vegetables. So even in that sort of ways, the way the intentions are good, we're trying to incentivize people maybe to eat fruits and vegetables, but just how that sort of controls and limits people's resources in ways that those who have access to money, they're not surveilled in that same sort of way. So Mm -hmm. 
we had this moment where someone donated some of their coins into our money jar, their snap coins. And I think we, we just saw, sort of saw them sitting in there and we're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, um, we hadn't really seen that before, you know. And the next week when someone did this again, uh, the woman I was working with, also an AmeriCorps volunteer who was working for CFP, said, so I found out we can't accept those. It's like spending someone else's food stamps, which is illegal. Mm. Uh, but then she told the person, but what you can do is you can take these coins and go buy some food with it. And then you can donate that food to us. Mm. And we can accept that. And so that like stuck with me a lot. And I vis revisited that moment in my interview with Lauren, who is the AmeriCorps uh, volunteer. And I asked her like how she felt about this moment. Like what was she feeling? And she talked about how horrible it was for her to have to say, and it was really like disempowering for her to have to say um, that they couldn't choose to donate their money. She said something like, well, they're giving a fraction of what they have the same way that everyone else is giving a fraction of what they have in dollar bills. So just because that person doesn't have a dollar to donate, like how disempowering is that for me to say, oh no, you can't donate. She said, who are we to say that? Mm -hmm. And so just thinking of these, these moments in these different ways that um, people with less resources are kind of controlled or surveilled or disciplined, and then where is the space to resist that as a nonprofit organization or not? And, you know, what kinds of positions are you put in? Uh, one, mm -hmm. one mode of resistance is to say, hey, just go buy, go buy mm -hmm. some potatoes and donate those potatoes to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that it's a challenging moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the donating of the potatoes strikes me through its resistance as, as potential resilience in a yeah. system. Mm -hmm. One of the, similarly, one of the moments that sticks with me in terms of surveillance is it, how the people who are doing the work of food justice are often surveilled, right? And have to, um, perform in a certain way. Um, and so one of the individuals that I interviewed told me a story about how, um, right, again, living on a limited stipend, uh, they would oftentimes stop at McDonald's to get a coffee on the way into to work in the morning. And before they entered, right, um, they would pour their coffee into a non-branded reusable mug hmm. because if they walked in with a mcdonald's cup then there would be questions about that right? mm -hmm. and that that story mm -hmm. stuck with me in terms of what is the performance of somebody who serves or a volunteer or somebody committed to food justice right does it make you any less committed to the environment or to food justice if you go to mcdonald's Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's certainly something that that sticks out to me. Mm. That's a great, really interesting example, Kristen. It makes and it makes mm -hmm. me think about how you can't disentangle, you know, McDonald's from communicate the way we communicate social class. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Or maybe it wasn't even an, a matter of money. Maybe it was just a matter of time, right? They didn't have time to make coffee before they left that day or whatever exactly. it might be, right? But we, we assume that it has it's connected to, to the financial or the economic yeah. in some way. And- and that symbol mm-hmm. of the McDonald's is classed uh, and that people Absolutely. perceive it that way, right? Regardless of um, whatever mm-hmm. reason someone might choose mm-hmm. to put there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the double binds that are implied in the judgments mm-hmm. that we render. Uh, you know, for me, it it's not the Diet Coke from McDonald's. It's the Diet Coke from Sonic. <laughs> that <laughs> that moves me, <laughs> but again, right? The um, there are times when I when I walk through campus with that with that Diet Coke, and I feel right the um, girl from the trailer court in Nebraska, mm-hmm. right? Who's carrying a Diet Coke, and and I've mm-hmm. chosen to keep doing that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and to walk through that and try to try to disrupt the stigma a bit, but kind of, um, again, Sonia, this connects to, to a broader program of research that, that you've been investigating in terms of how something like soda can be classed yeah. in the Very way that so. I think about it and talk about it and, and, uh, perform it or hide it or try to pass yeah. <laughs> as as being something that we're not or making choices that are different or absolutely yeah living up to the norm mm-hmm. and I think we try to hide behind language about it being about health or this or that right but there are similarly unhealthy snacks or treats that the wealthy indulge in or partake in that I don't get levied the same judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chiabani yogurt, right? How much sugar does that have in it? Exactly. <laughs> Starbucks, I mean. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. As we look forward, um, what's the future for you both? What do you envision as next projects, next steps in kind of your journey as um, activists committed to food justice? Mm. Well, for me right now, it's hard to see anything not through the lens of our current pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that food safety um, is going to be pretty important moving forward. How do we reopen restaurants? How do we um, safely provide services to people at community kitchens or food pantries or shelters? And um, right in light of uh, social distancing concerns. Um, one of the, the projects that I'm working on now uh, is a grant-funded project that is looking to address uh, food packaging safety in light of COVID, right? How can food packaging ha- help um, to protect the safety of food um, mm-hmm. within the current pandemic? So I think that that's going to be a major shift that we see um, in the future for, for food studies. Mm-hmm. Interesting connections to the work of Tim Selnow. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So I just moved to a new place. 
Um, and so I have my eye out for potential local organizations. Uh, but what really interests me and excites me and kind of what I'm looking for is ways of connecting food and, and food access and food justice to these other movements that are currently happening in our society right now. So current movements around racial and economic justice mm -hmm. um, and organizations that are maybe already doing some of this work and seeing the ways that they're making these connections and making these changes. Uh, because I see a lot of possibility right now. Um, I see people really starting to imagine how our social structures, like, you know, our justice system and our policing systems could be otherwise or could be different. And I think mm -hmm. that sort of, we need to bring that same sort of imaginative eye to food and to our food system. So I'm hoping in that connecting and that the organizations that are already doing this work, connecting uh, food to these other issues going on, that maybe we can bring about some creative possibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the future needs to investigate food research that's not focused on white people. Yeah. I think that uh, mm -hmm. it needs to take into account the black indigenous um, and, and people of color experience, right? Um, it, mm -hmm. Into mm -hmm. what we write about. Because so often we write about rural America, but that's white rural America typically. Mm -hmm. um, and we write about food deserts and urban areas, but whose voices are being represented, right? Usually the, the people that serve others, right? You you might interview the community organizer in an area, right? But what are the voices of the people that are actually living um, with hunger? And I think Rebecca D'Souza's work certainly does a great job of that. And we need more of that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that work in theorizing has already happened or is already happening, you know, and I think kind of tapping into that, um, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. stuff that is already going on. And elevating those voices like you were talking about, Kristen, is really important. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking of the work of Mohan Duda and his mm -hmm. colleagues, mm -hmm. right? When we think about global food systems yep. that cannot be disconnected from the the food industrial complex in the US, right? There's we need to amplify um, the the work that's being done. Um mm -hmm. And, and continue to, to pursue those intersectional questions to come full circle to, to language that you used early on. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really hopeful um, because of the work of people like Rebecca D'Souza and both of you. Um, so thank you for your sustained commitment and, and your commitment that comes from a place of of understanding food as something that's connected to our body, that's connected to our environments, the places we live, our economic, our legislative structures. And it is, we make sense of that in and through our communication. And, and that becomes really powerful because if, if we assume that how we talk about, sing about, write about something like food and hunger, is powerful, then we can re-narrate and re-sing right? and re-implot um, 
those narratives of hunger and shift what we think about as the causes and and then the solutions. So thank you. Um, thank you both for your work and, and for joining us today in this conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Listeners, thank you for joining um, Dr. Kristen Akamoto and, and Sonia Ivansis and I for this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DMPodcastWOUB. As I said earlier, on our Facebook page, we'll provide links to Kristen and Sonia's recent articles published in Health Communication that are made free to the public, um, thanks to Taylor and Francis. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. As always, go in peace and love one another. Thank you.